Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Tori Gates, a surreal, terrifying adventure into the heart of a jungle in Florida. Strange occurrences, characters each with their own agenda, and a monstrous creature that speaks. Bob Carey, an environmental lawyer, is thrust into the investigation, joined by a scientist and the manager of a surf shop, and they stumble into the cult of the Gator God, which is available on 5050 Press. A former member of the punk band The Repressed, Paul Lubashevsky has also been a music critic, a photographer, a caver, and, yes, an author. In a style reminiscent of Christopher Moore, with the meanderings of a Hunter Thompson, Paul Lubashevsky brings us this tale of adventure, horror, and dark comedy. He joins us today. Paul, thanks for coming in. Uh, thank you for having me on. Well, my first thought, as I began to read uh, this, is I was just plunged right into the pool, and you brought us straight to the action. And my experience has been sometimes like the smallest bits of ideas just bring about a book. We have to start with what really inspired the cult? Well, uh, we'll have to start with a year living in Jacksonville. (laughs) Okay. First and foremost. um, And, you know, they always say, write what you know. Well, I my first book was about Philadelphia, where you know I'm from, and well, F- Florida in and of itself just lends itself to horror comedy. It, <laughs> you, you know, just you, you could pretty much write a book just off of Florida man um, headlines, and and right there, if you just organize them correctly, I think you got a book right there. But I mean, on top of it. Um, I like I did some caving in Florida and so it like a lot of it is just meandering around the back countries of Florida where like every time there's a book about Florida like Carl Hyacinth everything is in the Miami area and everything has like a Miami feel to it and nobody really talks about the well severely hillbilly side of Florida which is kind of the rest mm-hmm. of it you know what I mean <laughs> If you get outside of Jacksonville, and well, actually Jacksonville itself, you know, you, you get a much different picture of what Florida is than Disney or Miami. Mm-hmm. And it certainly seems like you you drew heavily on that. I my first thought was Christopher Moore's Lust Lizard of Melancholy Cove because it was just I, I mean I hadn't read that in twenty years, but it was like it brought me back to this slightly off center strange little place and I I just immediately fell for it and um it, and that's the thing about Florida. It's like Jacksonville, you think of the city, you think of the Jaguars, whatever, but as you say, it's is is that part of is this other part of Florida is it more of 
it, where would someone compare it to if they lived in another part of the country, or could you do that? That's, I mean, it's it's the deep deep south. I mean, okay. nobody really thinks of Florida as being the deep south, but if you've ever been to Baldwin, oh my goodness, yes, it is. You know, it's, I mean, it's it's every bit Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Stark, Florida, definitely. It's it's right there. You know, and I think that's, that that was one of the – it was a learning experience living there. But on top of that, I think that was one of the, the – part of the fun of writing the book is because that's not the Florida anybody ever thinks of. You know, like a Hyacinth book is all, um, you know, drug lords and po- big-time polluters, and it's all kind of centered around, you know, murder in Miami and all of that. And, you know, everybody – Everybody thinks of, uh, else thinks of Florida as their trip to Disneyland, and if you've lived there, it's it's um, it's its own world. Mm-hmm. And our hero Bob gets thrown into it, and the early chapters, without giving a lot of it away, it's like Bob is stepping into. Uh, what he uh, it's not what he thought it was going to be now Bob is a lawyer who's just been transferred there tell us about Bob where does he come from Bob is a northeast environmental lawyer and he I think as a character I took some classes on environmental law from um, NC NC State uh, Chapel Hill and mm-hmm. like you could really fall in love with environmental law and the concept of protecting the environment and the history of protecting the environment. And like, rather than having a typical scuzzball lawyer, I liked the concept of somebody who was into law because he was also into the environment, and that was how he mm-hmm. could protect it. Like, I liked that concept as a character. Mm-hmm. And he seems like he's a guy that's been around a little bit, and you know you have to adapt to circumstance and it's just it was it was reminiscent of of me moving to another place a couple of times in my life when I moved into a place, and I suddenly found out, wait a minute, you know that guy doesn't live here anymore. Why do you keep bothering me? You know the phone calls and stuff oh that's i mean especially in Jacksonville because it's it's transitory. Like Jacksonville mm-hmm. is a very, very transitory city. I mean, in our in our development when we lived there, nobody was from there. Like okay. there, there was no such thing as a Jacksonville na- native in the entire neighborhood we lived in. You know, they were they were all people that had come from somewhere, and most likely were going to be going to somewhere else. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, we ran into that. They they actually did cut off our power once. And I had to go to the the phone at the at the local food food line and argue with them for a while that you're, this it's not us. You, you just cut off somebody else's power, like that just happens to live at the same address. Mm-hmm. So it was it yeah. was very that that a lot of that that part of it was very based in real life because I mean that right there is the kind of thing that in hindsight that's hilarious. Maybe not at the time, but in hindsight, it was really funny. Yeah, yeah, definitely not funny at the time. And uh, no, it's uh, no when I when I bought my home in in Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania, I 
got everything set up and immediately I was just beset by more letters and things, these these strange notices for people that that had lived there apparently some years before because no one had lived in my home for two years while it was being renovated. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, how do I explain to these people that I don't know who they are? <laughs> yeah, I mean – that, like I said, it's it's mu- it was much more Florida because I mean when I when we moved up to West Virginia, you know, I, while everybody knew the previous owner of our house and didn't have many good nice things to say about him, at least I wasn't getting his mail. <laughs> That's cool. Well, it's interesting looking at what Bob is stepping into. Um, in terms of his law office and the kind of people that it, it, some of the characters are, are pretty pretty familiar if you've ever worked in any type of office before. Uh, now, did you have background with with the legal in, uh, the legal side of things, or how did some like like his boss, the receptionist? These people are all so interesting in their own weird way. Well, I mean, a lot of it is, I mean, I do have friends in law, and, like, my background is actually environmental. Um, like, I have a diploma in environmental sciences, but, mm-hmm. like, since I took took environmental law cl- classes just to kind of, you know, it, you can't say you're, like, really interested in protecting something if you don't know the legal mechanisms of doing it. Mm-hmm. And, but on top of that, like, you know, in our hometown, I'm friends with, like, the, the, the former uh, county prosecutor and you kind of get a feel of like talk, talking to him and, and talking to some of his friends. What actually goes on in the law office about? Right, and that kind of brings me to a thought of the research that you have to do when you're writing any kind of work. And and some people found it a little surprising that when they saw some of the source material I used when I write fiction, they're like, you're really doing research. And I'm like, yeah, I've got to know, you know, like most of my books are set in Japan and that's because of my interest in history and in culture, but you have to know how they talk. You have to know how the Japanese people interact, the things that you do not do, the things you cannot do. And that plus looking into history and, and that sort of thing is that's a, that's a really important value that uh, maybe we don't, you know, kind of like I honestly, younger authors need to know. I, I honestly think you have to research the heck out of wh- wherever you're going with something strictly because, um, I mean, if you get it wrong, you, you've, you've infuriated somebody and somebody who might've been <laughs> a fan. No, I, mm-hmm. I know this, I know this for a fact. I mean, as you say, there was a book set in the Valley where I lived for a little while. So I like, you know the Lehigh Valley. And mm-hmm. the book got thing after thing wrong. And, you know, it's like the so like I'm twitching, you know, as I'm trying to read this book. You know, and it's like uh-huh. and if you're really going to transport somebody to somewhere, it it can't be all your imagination. You know, I mean you do have to actually know where things are, you know, like like even even to do this book, even though I lived in Florida, I actually sat there with Google Maps and like re- refreshed my memory on what like certain parts of the highway looked like, mm-hmm. you know, what what certain off streets looked like, you know, like yeah, I lived there and everything, but at the same time, I want to get this exactly right, what it actually looks like, you know, I don't want to put in details that are just absolutely wrong, and I think that's like you know anything anything you want to do 
with a book, like you have to know the, the subject matter a little bit, or you're doing the, the subject matter a disservice, and you're also doing your readers a disservice. Very true. No, it's interesting. You brought up Google Maps. I did the same thing for for most of the places that I I research. If I can't get there, I started using that, and I did the same thing. I found roads. I found like different streets, and I started finding what some of the houses looked like on certain ones. And it's like, perfect. This is exactly what I need. This house need, we need to know what this house looks like, but you certainly did that. You certainly brought us down to the street level and, uh, through the neighborhoods. Um, and, uh, I loved especially the cab drive, the cab driver, the, the first ride in that Bob takes that gentleman was, was, I could just see myself sitting in the back seat getting the lowdown from him. I thought that was really cool. I, I, I really enjoyed writing that scene. It's it's he's trying so hard to, to, to like sell the place and he's just making it worse over and over again. <laughs> Yeah, Bob is you can just tell he's like the wheels in Bob's head are turning. It's like what have I done? What am I doing here? <laughs> well, I know that's the thing. It's it's funny cause since I'm from the northeast and you know, I've lived all over the place and we kinda yeah. looked at Florida and went, Yeah, we can live anywhere. You know. That's fine, we can live anywhere. I mean, I've lived in New York City, I've lived in Philadelphia, I've lived in Los Angeles. Yeah, we can live anywhere. And then we got to Florida. Okay, we did not expect this. <laughs> This, mm-hmm. this is a very different world than than what we know, and oh my. <laughs> yeah, and that leads us into the some of the other characters who've been there or have lived there all their lives. And um, the guy who becomes Bob's right-hand, Steve, is kind of like the field researcher. And um, again, you've got a background in some of what this fellow did, and I definitely want to ask about your caving a little bit later on, but... Um, this guy was interesting in that he sort of lived in his own world, and I've I've worked with people, in, especially in broadcasting, that it's like you work with someone, and yet they seem to have carved out their own little space in the universe. And uh, tell us about Steve. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. He's a researcher, and most of the people I I know who are researchers, they're they're lovely people, but man, they are. It's definitely their universe. And it's almost childlike, you know, like like even in caving, caving actually comes into this one. You know, this almost childlike belief of, well, I'm just looking at the cave. Yeah, but you just went through five fences with your car to do it, but I need to look at the cave. You know, that like single-minded mentality that's like, you know, it's just a lot of really intelligent people who do research are very much so like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was just, he just sort of, it, it was, I, I just sort of noted his sort of fear of when he finds out that Bob wants to come out on site with him for things, and he's like, there's this fear of like, you're letting some guy, you're letting this guy in, and I'm like, I'm trying to think, okay, are you afraid of him, are you afraid of him finding out what you actually do all day, or are you afraid of something else? It was just really an interesting moment. Well, I mean, he, he lives in a self-created kind of it, – it's such a specialized world that it, it becomes it, like a, a self-enclosed universe. 
you know, mm-hmm. and that's, I mean, like I said, that actually, can, you can see that in researchers. They they do something so specialized, and they're so used to people not caring about anything they do, and like their eyes glazing over at the party if they try to explain it at all, yep. that they've just kind of, like, it's become their own little bubble world. And here is this outsider that he doesn't know from Adam. It's like, yeah, I'm going to inter- invade your world. Mm-hmm. It becomes you very know, different. And, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, for somebody in research, <clears throat> like if you take any any good researcher and put them at a party, they'll barely talk because they've already learned through experience that everybody else considers what they do it, to be dry, mm-hmm. you know, boring over their head. And so they'll just keep to them, you know, nothing to say about what they do. And now here's this somebody that you don't know who isn't a fellow researcher who's just like, yeah, I'd like to come along and see all of it. I'm interested. And, you know, your instinct in that is to go, what are you up to? <laughs> yeah, that that is that is a thing I've, I've found in broadcasting. It's like certain people um, just sort of – they have a way that they've sort of fit themselves into their job, and here comes the new guy, and it's like – Yes, I know you're my colleague, and yes, I know you know your stuff, but how dare you? And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> so you just do the best you can with that, I guess. But you know, and it's funny because it's um, among these characters, I, I'm I'm just sort of running down some of them because I just found them so fascinating. It seems like the most normal person or the most conventional person in the whole place is Sarah, the girl who runs the surf shop, and I just loved her immediately. Well, I mean. It's funny that one of the things I actually wanted to do in in the book is I, I don't know how many people noticed, but all the the serious ass kicking is done by the women, and it, <laughs> yeah, that was a conscious effort. You know, I actually I actually is like you know the 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 norm in any any horror comedy book or even just is usually book in general is usually well there's the guy and he's the main character so of course he's going to do the, all the ass kicking and he's going to be the tough guy and no 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 he isn't no not at all the girlfriend is actually going to be the the bold and more more physically demanding character i i absolutely mm-hmm. wanted that wanted that to happen and it, it makes it makes her fun because it's it's enjoyable to have an aggressor in a situation be what was supposed to be the helpless woman in it. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, I, in a lot of ways, I think that's much more fun than just going, well, this is the way things are supposed to go in, in this situation, and that's the way they'll go. Well, and and that's, that's the thing, too, is um... – I don't know where I read this recently, but there was a discussion on, um, I think it was among authors or something like that, where somebody was noting that there is this rise of mostly female characters taking the lead in books and in stories and and wondering quite why that was. And I don't think, it might be a conscious effort by some authors, but in other cases, it doesn't seem that way to me. And it's And for me, it's like, a lot of the main characters in the books I've written and the stories I have not published tend to be female, and I've had members of my own family ask me, why is that? And I said that I don't really know, except that 
Part of it probably was who I grew up with and who I spent a lot of time with and became really close friends with. I had guys for friends, but I had a number of girls that were friends, and they seemed to remind me of things a lot more. And I think I agree. It just seems more fun to write for a female character or even to maybe delve into the feminine side of, of, of your human self just to see what might come out. I don't know. And I, I think, um, you know, it's like, it's funny. I grew up reading books that were definitely, like anything that came out of the 70s book-wise is generally like, you know, in the sci-fi, fantasy, and horror genres, like the guys are mm, the guy, you know? It's like, I mean, and I love I love stuff like that. I mean, I love Zelazny. I love, you know, Harry Harrison, uh, Stainless Steel Rat books. They're great, but at the same time, when you go to, like, find your own voice, it's a lot, like, it. for some reason I find, especially in horror comedy, I, I like my main characters to be a little more bumbling than that. Because I, I think that's actually how we go through life. I think it's it's closer to how we actually feel. It's like, yeah, we might want to be, you know, Corwin from a Zelazny book, but we secretly know deep down that we're Arthur Dent. Just <laughs> so I, I think it it instantly makes your main character more relatable. So like, but at the same time, it does create a situation where it would have been weird if Bob had suddenly turned into Rambo at the back end of the book. Yeah, it just it it just wouldn't have worked. It, it, it would it? It would just it would just made him seem very inconsistent, or you know, and it it, it was just like let's let's put a nice bow on this thing. And uh, no, but it, that was the thing. Bob remained relatable as all of them did all the way through. You could it's like you recognize these people, even the some of the more unusual ones. Um, as I say, I've got questions about some of the things that we've brought up. I just have to bring in, without trying to give all of it away, I one of the greatest, one of the best lines in the book was, it is not easy being a god. I found it incredibly interesting to hear Itori speak, and Itori sounded like an old philosopher or guru. It was just so, yeah, I, I could, I, I just found it really, really intriguing. I, I I think I like to think of Vittori as intensely patient with 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 everybody because Vittori like is above it all, but at the same time cares. Like mm-hmm. you know, like Vittori is actually a, a loving, caring God, but at the same time, people are so maddening and often dumber than posts. You know, and I, I like the concept of writing a god who 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 loves loves his flock, but at the same time, <sighs> sigh, great big sigh. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would like I would like to think that if there if there is an almighty he or she or or it looks down at us a lot of times with the same feelings. Yeah, sort of, sort of like when the parent looks looks at the child and just says, "I'm reminded of myself in you, but I'm still shaking my head." Yeah, I'm, I, I'm thinking right now of a moment with my son where he, when he was three, no two, and poured out an entire gallon of vinegar on the floor, looked at me and said, "Water," and then ran like hell. It's like okay. 
I love him. I think that's actually kind of funny. But my God Almighty, why on earth did that happen? <laughs> oh yeah, two. Never mind. I know. I already knew the answer to that question before I even asked it. <laughs> anyway, well, it sounds like Atori has to deal with that on on certain levels, and it was um, as I say, the, the story really flowed on and it just sort of immersed you in this place these strange characters and everything now was cult of the gator god a new step in in some of what you've written is was it like breaking new ground or was it was it a natural progression in in what you write or want to write do you think well i mean my first book um i never eat cheesesteak is also horror comedy and i I think each book's like you know they're different but at the same time like I mean, I write a lot of different stuff, but the horror comedies, I, I like to think, they they progress to different places. But I think there's that that core kernel of, of like like I I want to say soft heartedness and and humor, like at the at the base of it. Like I, I think like at the base of it, like you know, I, I, there's a desire for for humanized characters. There's a desire for. <clears throat> For you to really actually care about them, while at the same mm-hmm. time cracking as many jokes as I can humanly wedge in there. And I have never heard of horror comedy. Now, was there? Is this something that you've created, or what? Who influenced you? Maybe in some of what you've read, or other writers. Is is this something that is that you are carrying into a tradition of, or did you just come up with it yourself? I'm I'm intrigued by oh, it. No. There's there's a there's a definite tradition of it. Um, I mean, mind you, I I think it it stems out of sci-fi originally. Um, like you can start with, you can start right with Hitchhiker's Guide, mm-hmm. and then Terry Pratchett decides to do it to fantasy, and then actually quite a few. I mean, it's weird as a genre in that publishers are unthrilled about it. Like they do not get excited, but it it routinely sells. Go mm-hmm. figure with that. But like I mean, you have Christopher Moore, you have uh, Jeff Strand, Ailey Martinez, um, you know myself. Uh, there's I mean there's there's quite a few pretty good horror comedy authors out there, and you know I, it's one of my favorite things to read, which it it's kind of a bummer that it's a it's a it's a small field, though. I mean, it, it really is. And I can see why, because, I mean, you've got to really have a deep love for two kind of diametrically opposed things. You know, you've got to love love horror, and <clears throat> but at the same time, you know, it, 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 it's, 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 like hitting, it's like hitting Texas Chainsaw Massacre over the head with the George Carlin album. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I get it. Um, well, let's see. Taking a look at some of the influences now. You originally from Philadelphia. Um, the envir- we're we're products of our own environment. So, um, tell us about growing up in Philly and where you've moved about, and and that leads into obviously the the influences of your reading and your writing. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, Philly. It, it's funny. Philly is a place that humors me. I love it. I just can't live there. Um, okay. It's well. I think in cities in general, I joke about it. It's, it only took me, you know, eight ma- major metropolitan 
areas to finally discover something really important. I don't like living in a city. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, Philly, Philly was, Philly was great as a kid. If you were into horror, I mean, it was. We had, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean, we had, um, you know, Saturday afternoon, you had two different channels running horror movies. So right. for like as a kid. You know, like you had the, you had Creature Double Feature on 48, you had Dr. Shock on 17, and then as you got a little older, um, NBC started running Saturday Night Dead right after um, Saturday Night Live. So, I mean, you had these, like, you know, there were these great, this great supply of horror movies, and like, and since they were like, you know, daytime TV ones, not always very good. So, I mean... (laughs) I, and I think like there's a lot of it right there. I mean, growing up loving Godzilla films, if if you can't see the humor, like if you can't see where where the genre could be poked fun at, growing mm-hmm. up with like that constant supply of yes, yeah, sometimes they're they're classics, and sometimes, hey, look, I can see the boom mic in the background. <laughs> well, and it was it was funny too because I mean I grew up in Vermont and. Um, I grew up in a small town, and we basically got a few channels from Canada and a few channels locally. And there used to be a thing, one a channel ran called Shock Theater on Saturday afternoons. And we used to watch it, and it was the same kind of thing, these scary but really cheesily done movies. And then you fast forward 15 or 20 years, and – all of a sudden, those movies are on Mystery Science Theater 3000. You know, I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> but I mean, when you when you're eight years old and you know there's nothing to do with the day, so you come inside early and you're wa- wa- watching the, the the Saturday feature. I mean, they're they're magnificent. You yes. know, it's like I to this day I I have a deep deep love. For, I mean, you could probably even t- trace some of the roots of of Cult of the Gator God all the way back to Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, which I watched on Creature Double Feature when I was seven. <laughs> you know, that's that was the big, that's the big Godzilla attempt to take on on the concept of pollution. Yeah, and it's and there were so many of those movies that they captured a child's imagination, and I, I know certain ones did. I just I just remember Earth versus the Giant Spider or something like that, and that ended up on MST3K. And I just remember my friends and I watching it when we were like seven or eight years old, and we were just like, on one level we're a little bit scared of this, and on another level we're like. Oh my God, this is hilarious! And we're laughing at things we shouldn't be laughing at. So I, I think that meant we must have seen the humor in at least some of it. <laughs> but that, that's the thing. I mean, to write horror comedy, you've got to kind of—you have to have a, a deep-seated love for horror. You've got to actually understand what's scary, and you've got to know the genre well enough to to know that there are a lot of tropes. There are a lot of sacred cows. In other words, there are a lot of jokes just looking for a place to happen. And you know, if you and at the same time though, you've got to be on the other side. And it's like I also grew up with, you know, I hate to even say his name now, but it was the '70s and we didn't know what we knew. Uh, Bill Cosby. I mean, but then like mm-hmm. the late '70s was like this magnificent time for 
for comedy. You suddenly had Saturday Night Live, you had George Carlin yes. records, you had Richard Pryor, you had Steve Martin, and the, people think of Steve Martin as an actor, but my God, those early comedy records were groundbreaking. Yes, and I... I think on. a lot of my, my humor, you know, things that I find funny, those Steve Martin records, a lot of it's right there. You know, that just absurdist... Mm-hmm. Pointing, pointing out the absurd by being absurd yourself. And those are the very things that I was listening to as I was growing up. And yes, Bill Cosby, the same thing. It was like before we knew what he was turning into. And some of his old comedy records, uh, those, um, I gravitated to George Carlin and Richard Pryor very quickly, and much to the consternation of my parents because of the words he used. But even then, I knew that he was using those words because that's how you get your point across. This is how you this is how you make your point, and I think I was able to differentiate some of that. And um, what also happened, I was also fortunate. I'm the youngest in my family, so it was like I had uh, brothers who loved Monty Python, and they helped me sort of trace back British humor. And then even before that to Peter Sellers, the goon show stuff like that. And it's like, you start to go backwards in that and you, you see where the the building blocks of comedy and, and where it comes from. And it all just kind of, it all kind of stores itself in our minds, doesn't it? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I I have to routinely watch myself, you know, every once in a while I will just go with, you know what? I'm going to grab that joke, and everybody who's ever read this author or listened to this record and is going to know damn well where I got it from, and that's going to be kind of the joke in and of itself, mm-hmm. you know. But um, but yeah, you do have to watch yourself. I mean, otherwise you're you're just vicking left and right because like all those jokes are just implanted, you know. All of those Python routines, all all of those Steve Martin jokes, they're they're all in there somewhere, just waiting to creep out. <laughs> Exactly. Now, how about when when did it, it start to come about for you to write? What what really started to say, all right, I'm going to start writing my own stuff. I'm going to do this. When when do you think when did that occur? And was there anything that just triggered it? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I put off like writing seriously for forever, um, just because being a Philadelphian, I'm a natural born contrarian. Um, you know, anything you tell us to do, we'll do the exact opposite just because. <laughs> and in school, it was like, oh, well, you're going to be a writer. Well, okay, now you've told me exactly what I'm not going to do. And to hell with you, too. Um, so I wrote in everything but actually taking fiction seriously. I mean, you know, writing lyrics for a band. I wrote poetry. I was a music critic. And. You know, I would like dabble with writing, but I would never re- like really hunker down and take it seriously. And then, like, my eldest was getting married, and I was just kind of just struck by, you know, that's not really a lot to leave behind. Maybe, maybe you should actually take something seriously and hunker down. And what are you good at? And like, I came came to writing. You know, it's like the one mm-hmm. thing I've always had a talent for, and it's like, well, it, if you're going to do it, take it seriously. I mean, and you know, because like you can, 
you can be successful as a music critic and, and never really, really apply yourself. You know, I mean, you're writing a couple paragraphs on an album. You know, you spend the first paragraph comparing it comparing it to what else it sounds like. You know, and then you slip in a couple of new comments and you're done. You know, so you don't have to take that seriously. Music, you know, I I took that very seriously, but it's it's when you have responsibilities, it's making music is a is a communal act and it's like do you have time for like that communal action or do you have a house and a kid and you know things you have to do and that was the thing for i i i i went through some of the same things i i was a music critic for years uh for different publications and it was the same kind of thing it was like trying to figure out how to write i got to a point where i started to think i'm just writing the same things over and over again this is starting to suck and i'm not getting anywhere with that and I would get the opportunity to write features or do interviews and stuff, and that was more fun. I enjoyed doing that, but at the same time, and and in my old band, it was the same thing. It was communal. It was like when we got together and played and had fun, I felt, I felt more creative. I definitely felt like I was having a good time with it and everything, but at the same time, it was like I walk away from it, and I'm like, okay, I can write the songs. I can I can write these, but it's like... I'm not I didn't feel the discipline or the or the thing hard enough to just go and script out every single thing the bass part what's the percussion going to be like I always let the other bandmates do their thing and writing for me also was same thing it was like okay I can write short pieces I can write broadcast copy I can write all that the the book eluded me for a long long time and then finally Somewhere about 15 years ago, I finally just said, all right, screw it. You've got to do this. You've got to really sit down and, and do the work. And it it's freeing in a way when you, you suddenly start to make that progress. Did you feel like the relief? Did you feel like the accomplishment or anything? You know, I, what I, I, like, I started with short stories <clears throat> because, honestly, in, I still feel deep down inside that for horror – <clears throat> a short story is like the perfect length. Mm-hmm. It's you know, and I, I, that's I'm sure that that comes from what I, I grew up reading. You know, I grew up reading Poe and Lovecraft, and you know, like that yep. that that short sharp shock of it. And you know, once I actually started like finishing stuff, it's like, oh wait, you know, if I if I just apply myself here, I can actually finish something. And, you know, I kind of stayed away from writing a book until, honestly, first book I wrote is going to be like the fifth or sixth published. Um, it's it's in copy edit now. It was a fantasy book, and I wrote it for my wife strictly because she, like, she was complaining that, like, all of her favorite authors had passed away, and she had nothing to read, so I wrote her a book. That's cool. You know, and that's... That, <clears throat> That's kind of the the thing I was saying before. It's like, I, well, I guess I'm known for horror and horror comedy. I also write fantasy. I write some sci-fi because I don't want to just... I don't like the concept of, well, I am this kind of author. Because mm-hmm. that's, you know, it's, it, it's an imposed rut. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I, I want to like writing horror comedy. I want to. I want to. When I when I'm writing it, I want to feel like, yeah, I'm into this. Not well, this is what you do now. Yeah, no, I'm I'm the same way. I try I try to write different. I don't think what I do. I'm not sure if I'm really saying it the right way, but it's like, and I don't want to sound crazy about it, but it's like, I heard recently an old interview with Lou Reed, and he was questioned about the Velvet Underground and what the songs were about and what the subject matter was. And he said that we were trying, this is paraphrasing, to elevate the rock song. We were trying to take it into subject matter, more adult subject matter, things you know things that weren't being written about and i thought when you listen back to some of the some of that you're like okay i think i now i think i get that and i think what i'm doing i'm not i don't know if i'm elevating it or not but i'm trying i'm trying to write you know i'm trying to write relatable characters but i'm also trying to tell some different stories and i'm trying to not be stuck in a genre I don't want. I don't really like my stories being put in one genre. It bugs me, and I want to be able to say, "Look, I can write other stuff too." I guess that's what I'm trying to say. You know, that's. I mean, like with horror, like I, I will often with with my shorts try to push the envelope because I think I've always thought it's a shame that there was never a like new wave of sci-fi movement in horror. Like mm-hmm. the new wave of sci-fi movement took it took stuff from the beats took stuff from actual art and, and and pushed the envelope of what writing for that genre could be. You know, and I've tried to I've tried often with my shorts to actually try that with with it, like actually to really explore language, explore like textures within it. And again it's like but at the same time I can whip around and, and write out a horror comedy book that's, you know, a what I hope is a really satisfying pulp read, you know? So mm-hmm. I like, I, I like, I don't like, it, yeah. I mean, writing is a job, but at the same time, like with any job, it's as much of a job as you make it feel like a job. Right. You know, and as long as I'm enjoying what, what I'm writing, I think that that'll come through and, and like, you know, an audience will find it. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a couple of intriguing words. You you mentioned I never eat cheesesteak. I was like, okay, tell tell us about that. Tell us about that one. Well, I mean that's that's it, it's a horror comedy, but at the same time, there's a loving homage to my hometown in there, mm-hmm. and which I've discovered I discovered through that book. There's a lot of hatred toward Philadelphia. I mean, <laughs> there is quite a bit of I. I dislike of the city of Philly and you know okay fine and being a Philadelphian I I say what every Philadelphian says fine don't like us we don't care yeah. you know but it, it I I don't know I I think that's it's weird that there's an irrational hatred toward Philly considering it's just this working class town and mm-hmm. I mean mind you that's one of the things I I kind of like about it and I think I think a lot of the grittiness that used to be in books about New York, like New York it is not New York anymore. It's, 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 Manhattan is very clean. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I lived in the Lower East Side and like in Alphabet City and like I did a Google map search of my old address and people had bikes outside. 
locked up outside their apartment, which, like, when I lived there, you didn't even like to go outside of your apartment, let alone leave your bike there. Yeah. You know, and I think the grittiness that people used to write for New York stories, I think Philly still has some of that grittiness, and I think it's, it's a more natural move of that type of story. And that also comes into the one that you sent, the short story you sent me, A New Life. I mean, that takes us, that takes us to the tough, you know, that takes us to the really tough part of Philly. And that takes us to a gritty, the gritty area that you talked about. And that was, you know, there's, there's nothing funny there. It was, that was like street level thing. Where did, how did, did that, that just come out of your recollections of Philly, your experiences, or, or 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 all of it? How did it go? Well, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I, I streeted it in Philly, so, yeah, that's a lot of that is just recollections. I mean, you know, what it was like, the, I mean, what being, I, I think, like, being without a home in a major city and being young, I think there's just, I, I think that's kind of universal and, you know, the constant looking out for yourself and, and looking out for who who is trying to, to bone you. And, like, there's a lot of that there and, like, all the little things you have to do to survive, mm-hmm. you know. And, again, you know, what I said earlier, I was like, I don't want to write the same thing every time. And I, and I wanted to write a – I wanted to write a Jim Carroll piece. Mm-hmm. But – I wanted to do it with with horror, you know, and that's. I like to think I I, I got what got what I wanted, and um, you know, it was that was I think it, I think it's a novella strictly because it's also not very fun to write though. Mm-hmm. Well, what does the future do you think of the horror world hold in terms of new authors? Are are you seeing? Anyone coming up that's breaking new ground, someone that maybe has a similar style to you that we should be looking at? Well, I mean, I don't like to uh, – things move in trends, and mm-hmm. um, like right now the trend is, is definitely splatter. And, you know, I'm not a huge fan of it. I'll read it on occasion. But, you know, then next week it will be something completely different. And – but – um, like I liked, uh, I liked Duncan Ralston's Ghostland quite a bit. I, you know, I wouldn't call Jeff Strand the future of horror. I mean, he's been around for for decades and has written, I don't even know how many books at this point. Mm-hmm. But he's he's certainly, um, as far as indie horror comedy, I mean, he's he, he's the name right now. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, Christopher Moore is. Like the the he's the Stephen King of horror comedy. He's he's on the big house. He's he gets on the bestseller list. Everybody know, knows Christopher Moore, but Jeff Strand is is definitely the the king of the, the indie horror comedy authors out there. And like he was also nice enough to to give me a blurb, so I'm also very thankful for that. Okay. And actually, his new book on writing is probably. Like I'm not a huge fan of books on writing because I, I tend to find that they're unrealistic and they're very rigid of what the author likes to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily because you know, everybody writes differently, 
and those books tend not to take that into account. Jeff's book is much much more along the lines of, so you decided to be an indie indie writer. Well, this is what it's really like. Uh huh. That sounds very interesting, and it's um, and and it, it sounds like a more realistic take on what we're dealing with. Are you and I, you and me both, right now? <laughs> oh, it's I mean, it's filled with funny anecdotes and and lots of it's it's a much more realistic book, I think, to t- to teach people of like what it's like to actually do this and try to do this for a living. Then you know. Everybody can love Stephen King, and Lord knows I have I have some of his books, and everybody does. But his mm-hmm. books on writing are like, wow, that's dated. Like you know, when he talks about like advances and stuff, it's like, I wish they still gave out those type of advances. Yeah, um, I was given on writing uh, as a gift by my sister some years ago, and I found it very interesting. But at the same time, when I saw like. When he was dressing his characters, he went to a specific catalog, and I was like, you're kidding. And I was like, and I thought, okay, just because he does does not mean I need to. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's actually one of the – Jeff and I have actually talked about this. It's like there are so many things that are in on-writing books that, like, become these, like, little mantras, and Mm -hmm. so many of them are just – Stupidly religious, like uh, like like the, one of my favorites is show don't tell. I mean, or yes, tell. And that one's like, first off, it's vague enough that you can just spit it out there when when you didn't get something and you want the author to change it. And mm. on top of it, it it like it's like every 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 editor that has ever just like taken two courses on creative writing in college is going to just spew that one out at some point. And invariably, it's like, you know, like I think once, I've had one editor say it to me once where it was like, oh, you're right. And every other time I've ever heard it in my entire career, it's always been like, I, I, I am just totally not seeing it. You know, it's like, it's, it's just one of those mantra things. And it's like, I think, like, and some of them are even more rigid than that. Some of them are like, you must do this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And it's like, no, yeah. no, people don't operate like that. Like one one author wrote a, a on-writing book that was like, well, you have to plot it all out. And it's like, you know, half the writing world pants it. You know, they, they don't mm-hmm. plot. They just fly by the seat of their pants. And it's like, how dare you write a book that says, well, you're all doing it wrong. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. It's like you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt. You really do. And uh, I mean, I, I for one, do plot some of my stuff out, but I know for a fact that point A to point B is going to have several twists and turns in the middle of it, and and I don't care. I'm like, I'll get there. I'll and and I'll get to it. And uh, and no, and and I have other friends that say the same thing. They're like, I just write, and I'm like, good. If it works for you, do it. Yeah, I mean, it's like how I write is I generally have the ending in mind and um, maybe like two or two scenes ahead in my head as I'm writing. But past that, I don't know. Lots of things could happen <laughs> between Twixt and Twain. And that 
I'll know right about when you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's and that's the fun of it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, I, let I, me I, ask you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I enjoy that that aspect of it. It's like you know, I'm I'm learning the story as I go too. Mm-hmm. That's that's so true. Well, listen, uh, tell us in the few minutes we have left here, what is what is next for you? Uh, what's on the horizon? You you had mentioned uh, some other work. Uh, what can we look for from you? On February 28th, uh, I have a collection of three novelettes of just pure full bore Appalachian horror uh, called Three Hits from the Holler. It's coming from St. Rooster Books, and I'm very much so looking forward to to that coming out, um, I I really really enjoy enjoy these, and you know again right what you know I've lived in Appalachia for 16 years so eh, I've got a bit of a feel for it, and you know um, on top of that uh, I'm signed just signed a contract for my next horror comedy, The Wild Witch is a West by God, that will be coming out from Madness Heart Press. Later this Very year. cool, and um, I found, of course, I found your work on Amazon. What is is Amazon the best place, or, or where's the best place to uh, find purchase your works? Uh, I guess it depends on the book. Um, usually, actually, if you just go from Goodreads, they, they have like all the books have links from from there, and that way, if you're not a big Amazon fan, you can you know you can like find like uh, I never che- eat cheesesteak through IndieBound, or mm-hmm. you can just. You know, which I, I tend to recommend because you know I love independent bookstores. They're usually the the cooler places to find the weirder stuff, and that makes them more fun. And you know, I mean, Amazon like in this business you have to deal with Amazon, but yeah, you know that's like you could also buy my 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 book from Walmart too. And I don't know if I'd recommend you did it though. <laughs> Well, you know, it's the same thing too. It's the indie it's starting to see the rise of the indie shops again a little bit here and there, and it's like it's it's a it's a comforting thing. It, it is for me when I go into a shop that I don't know anything about, and I see you know you see the typical mainstream books, and then you see these interesting ones. It's like going into an old used record store, and it's like you're just flipping around, and all of a sudden that hidden gem just pops up, and you're like, even if you don't know what it is, it's like I'm getting this. It's so cool. Oh yeah, no, like I I've bought books off off the cover and I love browsing a bookstore. I mean, like you can lose me in a used bookstore for a very long time. You know, just like I mean, just like an old record store. I mean, like if I go into a really yeah. cool cool record store, like there I mean, there's one in Roanoke that is just really cool and you drop me in there and well, this is going to take a while cuz I need to look at everything. Mhm. Because I'm only I've, I've only allotted for one or two purchases, and I want to walk out of here like dancing. I, I I know that feeling. It's like I I want the one that's meant for me, and and that's so cool. Well, listen, Paul. Last question: Do you have a piece of advice to aspiring authors? What What's the one thing you'd tell them? Um, persistence. It's, I mean, there's a lot of knockdowns in this business. There's, I mean, there's rejections. There's, you're, you know, you're going to get rejections as you go. You're going to get bad reviews. But to get anywhere you really want to go in the business, you've just got to be doggedly persistent. 
I mean, you know, it's like I watch, I, you know, I've, I've called it the three-year rule. You know, I've watched a lot of good authors that start off really hot and they look like they might be going somewhere and it just wears them down and in about three years they quit and you never mm-hmm. see them again. You know, and that's a shame too because who knows what they they might have written if they kept after it. You know, who knows where they could have gone with it, you know. I mean, because on top of it, nobody's nobody's perfect first time out. Like, you know, I mean, your, your first attempts at writing are not going to be like, like maybe you'll be able to edit them later into something you're really proud of, but like they're your first attempts, but you've just got to keep hammering at it, keep pushing that, that boulder up the hill. All right. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on. All right. Our guest on today's episode of the Brown Posey Press Show has been Paul Lubashevsky author of The Cult of the Gator God and other works. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of the Brown Posey releases A Moment in the Sun, live from the cafe and searching for Roy Buchanan. Find these and other works at sunburypress.com and other online retailers. This is the BookSpeak Network. 